0: Welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great discussion with Dr. A.B. Chatterton, who who practices in Iowa and is also a vision source administrator in Iowa. And um, A.B. and I kind of talked about PAC, we talked about student loan debt, we talked about um, healthcare and the impact of some of the current conversations that people are having politically on patient's perception of the care we're providing. So I had a, a really fun conversation with Avi, and, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, as always, please subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star review, and support those who support us.
1: Today's show is sponsored by iCode Education. At iCode Education, we create and host high-quality, relevant, COPE-approved, online optometric CE. We offer practice management courses from billing and coding, fee assessment, and chart auditing to clinical courses that focus on topics ranging from the anterior segment to the posterior segment to myopia control and neurological disease. Additionally, we partner with associations to help them provide their members and non-members with online continuing education at their own pace, on their own schedule. This allows our associations to generate non-dues revenue and provide a valuable service for their members who are allowed to obtain hours from distance learning entities. Check us out at icodeeducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E education.com. One more time, E-Y-E-C-O-D-E education.com.
0: memory of you, we'll kind of start back with my first memory. So I I don't know if you recall, but I was uh, a president and I was talking at at a meeting and I I was some national meeting. I can't remember which it was, but you were, um, you were raising money for PAC. And, um, and I just recall that uh, every time, every time you had to go up there and you were asking for more money for PAC and And I I really always have admired people in the profession that have done those types of things, especially ask for money because it's real, you know, it's a real challenge and it can be gut-wrenching when you see that, gosh, I'm asking all the time and it's hard to get people to donate. So tell me about that experience and and kind of your history with that.
2: Well, I started with uh, the PAC organization a long, long time ago. I took over the state PAC chair and... uh, working with people, and you realize that there's a lot of people that are, are very generous that are kind of behind the scenes, and they give, but they, you know, stand up in front of anybody, or uh, you, you kind of learn that, and, and, I, and I admired those, and then I, I was asked to be on the pack board, and you kind of watch how other people do things, I guess like uh, everybody else, I, I drank the pool, Aid I understood really what was going on, why we needed this It wasn't really about the money. It's about optometry and influence and a voice. And so uh, the more I bought in, the easier it was for me to talk And again, my whole idea was don't run away from me when I'm coming to talk to you. That's right. Um, You know, be there because, you know, it's a conversation. And whether you do or you don't this time or now, at least understand why we're asking and what it's about. Um, and I, I got to the point where, for me, it was about kind of like giving at church. My, my theme was give it to you, give to it, it feels good. Yeah. And so, you know, if it feels good for you to give $10, give $10. If it feels good to give $2,000, give $2,000. But if you're part of it, if you're giving mm-hmm. something, then you're at least involved and you understand that we're going to move forward. And so for me, it was about, um, you know, a lot of people have come before me and done their part and it was just my part, my time and my part. And I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. You know, I, I got to, to feel like an important thing for the AOA, it's important thing for optometry. And I guess that was my motivation. Just too much.
0: Yeah. Do you think, what was the, one of the like largest challenges you had with, for, um, yeah. I mean, what was the largest challenge that you, you saw in terms of, of trying to, to raise additional funds for both AOA and then also for your state? What what did you encounter frequently that you thought, man, this is a big obstacle?
2: Yeah, the biggest obstacle is, um, you know, the, the same thing always is. It's that 80-20, 20% of the people give 80% of the money. And, and to try to get that 80% to just move off the, you know, the side, to do something. Yeah. And I think it's kind of like anything. Once you're involved, you know, you're kind of locked. And so the biggest challenge was to to shift that, you know, eighty percent to seventy-five percent. So to to move the twenty to twenty-five. percent right. So anything you moved on that was a long-term victory because it's kind of like once you get used to it, you're part of it. You feel like you're in it, and then it's easier to keep people. And so it's really getting people to do something.
0: Yeah. When um when you so is there a shift in, so, so that was probably, I remember that must have been in 2008 or 2007. How long, how long were you pack chair for the AOA? And, um, yeah, how long, how long was that?
2: Well, typically it's supposed to be a, a one term thing, but, okay. but I did two terms. Okay. Um, just the timing of it and, and uh, they had asked me to do it and, and I was, I enjoyed it. And so I, I, I did two terms and, and it was, um, kind of a transition time. And I think maybe that's why they wanted continuity as we had really stepped up. You know, I think the top tier was about $500 and we had made the decision to jump that up Yeah, and we went to this $2,000 top tier and, um, and challenged people. And what, what, what we found was that 20% gave more. Yeah. And and it might have moved a, the needle a little bit on the lower end, and some people say well, actually, people are giving two thousand. I can at least give a hundred, right? And so I think that there was that. And then um, right after, right when I was finishing, we decided well, the maximum level that you can give is five thousand. So right. why not put that as the target? Still, you know, this visionary level of two thousand actually caught on quite well.
0: Yeah, you know, I think that's that's always interesting. I've always thought the same thing is that you know if you keep if you keep the the certain, so I think there's, there's two things when I look at PACs that I think are important to be recognized. And, and in Nebraska, we've seen this happen where people are recognized for their lifetime giving as well. So maybe they weren't donating it as much every year, but they were, they were over the preponderance of their years where it had, had hit significant levels. But I also think, um, I think you're absolutely right. You know, if, if, if for example, and I, I'm saying this as a PAC member and as, as a PAC donor, that I always think, you know, if, if my association put that highest level at fifteen hundred, right? Right now, it's the, the high, most recognized level is the thousand, right? Well, if they put it at fifteen hundred, I can tell you I will donate fifteen hundred, right? Like I don't want to heard it. Yes, yeah, so the, the point is, is that I don't want to be at at the bottom, right? And there's this whole group of us that don't want to be. So is it, was there any pushback? Um, and that's okay. You know, and I think it probably does elevate everybody else, right? They, they're going to say, well, you know, I'm giving a hundred bucks now. Maybe I can jump up to that next tier at 250 or whatever it is. Is there, um, is there some other psychological aspect that you guys have to deal with when you're looking at, at doing that jump where all of a sudden you may turn people off? Was there ever that conversation?
2: Yeah. Yeah. The, the risk is, um, you know, you have these people that they're doing the, the five hundred, which was the maximum at that point in time, and they're very comfortable with that and maybe they've been doing it for twenty years. And, and and you make the jump and they were at the top and now, you know, that's a pretty big jump. Do they wanna stay there? And so the the the, the concern you have is that you lose leave those people behind and they're, you know, wait a minute, I've been doing this all this time and now all of a sudden these two thousand get recognition yeah. and this is their first year of giving anything and and so, so there's that. And so we were pretty careful in talking to those, I guess, people that have been involved a long time and trying to make them understand that, you know, this doesn't mean you have to. Right. Um, you know, this is a push now. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of activity. And, um, you know, if you do what you're doing, that's awesome. Uh, but a lot of those people, just as, as you said, they jumped up. Yeah. Because all of a sudden we are, we gave them an opportunity to, to do more.
0: Yeah. So then, when um, when when you're done with the pack pack chair, are you immediately off the pack board, or do you stay on for a bit and kind of mentor the next people along? How did that work?
2: Well, for me, that that was the the end for me. I had been I'd done my two terms plus mm-hmm. on on, uh, on the pack board, and
0: and a term is just a year?
2: No, three years. Three. Okay, three, so you had done six years as yeah. a pack board chair, yes. or a pack board and, and I and ended up did seven. But but it, but. Um, it was, it was probably time. And again, I think, I think it's one of those things where you move on and you do something else and other people step up and, and, and everybody should have their time. Um, I hesitate a, a little bit. And then I think that, uh, that, that pack board changed a lot. Hmm. Um, it, was a, it was a real um, event. We, we actually physically got together and um, they started to be less of, that and more of, you know, all uh, web-based meetings, mm, yeah. and I think that there's something about face to face, hand to hand, <laughs> having a meal together that that binds you a little bit more. And I, so I think we are starting to lose something. So I, I feel I am kind of, you know, in a way, glad I did it when I did it. Yeah, and, and I would it would be hard to do it now.
0: You know, I I um, that's what I've with the podcast. I was just telling you before we even got on on the air is that. You know, I, because of the location and the proximity to people, um, is really easy to have phone calls or it's easier to arrange a phone call 830 at night. Uh, we can have these conversations long distance. But as you and I are sitting here face to face, it really changes the dynamic of, of the conversation. I, can get, I get to see the feedback that you're giving me, not just uh, hearing you um, and not just that the quality is better, but it also lets me kind of see all the other things that are going on. I think there's a lot to be said for that. And the challenge is that in this day and age, everybody's so busy. Everything is um, is so uh, quick. Give me the quick information, right? And do it from a remote location. Um, where there's this value in face-to-face meetings, and that's you know that's one of the things that you and I have discussed with Vision Source as well. Is why why you have a meeting like this, where you have you know how many people are here this today? Yeah,
2: about 160.
0: Yeah, so you have 160 people with a common goal of improving their practices. And improving their patient care and patient experience, um, that you can bounce ideas off each other that you trust, and and so I think that that even though you can in theory do these things remotely, um, it's great because it does allow us to kind of make spaces smaller. It it is a challenge because um, when there is the barrier of a microphone, that's one barrier, right? But then the barrier of you know thousands of miles. Is a, is a totally different barrier, even if I can see you on my screen. So, so how do we use that technology, and how have you been able to use that um, kind of your history with PAC to help kind of other doctors in your area, you know, on a face to face basis to kind of translate into some of those things that you've been able to do?
2: Well, I think um, you know, Vision Source, and as as you know, being an administrator. Um, you know, part of our challenge is to, to relate to our members on a, on a one-on-one basis because everybody has their own needs. Uh, different life cycles, you have family needs and you have obligations and so forth. And so some people can get to a meeting like this, you know, relatively easily. They maybe have other doctors and more doctors in their practice. Mm-hmm. Some, it's a struggle. And so we try, um, we, have, we have these statewide meetings like this, and then we have smaller group meetings, um, you know, I'll throw closer to home for yeah. people. But I still think, you know, I, you know, old school, yeah, probably. But I still think there's, there's still just a lot of value to a conversation that's a back and forth, right? You know, not a conver- You know, you get a whole bunch of people, you know, on, on a web program, and there's half of them don't say a word, right? If you're in a round table, you're gonna, you're gonna at least look at them and ask them a question that they'll comment on, yeah. And so, and you know, or even in the breaks, maybe they'll be, you know, as you're walking back and forth you'll uh, we'll have a conversation with each other. So I just, and I think that's the business horse exchange. Yep. It's the same thing. It's just, there's huge value in, the, in that time. And, and again, you know, it's a task to try to con- convince other people to go, get them there the first time. Right. And, and then they get that. But, but uh, a lot of people are very guarded with their time. I think it's just the, the world we live in. And, and so many people are so comfortable with all their communications being digital. Right. You know, it's, it's it's what we're gonna to have to live with.
0: You know the um, the thing I think about with with all of that is is I wonder if I'm just an anomaly. Like I still like to be able to get sit down with somebody and have have a conversation. But I wonder if it's because I don't get it that often. You know, even my dad and I we're in practice. So I as you know I see patients Monday through Thursday, um, and um, my dad sees patients Thursday and Friday, and our associate sees patients with me Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and with my dad on Friday. So the only time my dad and I are seeing patients in the same building uh, is on Thursday. So we see each other a lot outside of that, but you know, and so we, we wind up having conversations about the practice and, and kind of deeper conversations in between patients or in between uh, you know, when we're putting something together in the backyard. But, um, but I think in general, you know, we are, our, our society is going toward this, you know, 140 characters or 280 characters and being able to, to say these ideas and points and then, um, and then that's it. And so I wonder if people are, if I just enjoy podcasts and I enjoy these conversations so much because in general I'm starved for some of that, you know, like for some longer conversations or if I'm, or if that's how everybody feels or, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm just trying to kind of wrap my mind around where things are going uh, in the culture and with, with technology.
2: You know, it, it's it's hard for, for me to say, again, because I'm um, from a generation where a lot of mm-hmm. face-to-face time happens. I still have a couple breakfast meetings a week mm-hmm. uh, with different people. I have a group of guys that we meet once a week, and I meet with some of my uh, my lead office staff on another morning early for breakfast. And I just think there's a, a, a whole lot of exchange that happens in reading faces and and even if they don't have, if they have a question but they don't ask it, you can look at them. You can see that they have a question.
0: Yeah, right. And
2: so you can get that out. Yeah. And and uh, I think that that, that that's missing. Um, probably the biggest thing missing in my practice. There's four doctors in my practice, and we don't get together often enough. Right. And so I think there. You know, we just did this just this week. Got together, and I think there was a lot of unresolved things and questions that we both had, and paths that were you know that the practice was going that we hadn't even. Broached for several months. Yeah, and so I, you know, there's just something different about, you know, reading a thing and then putting something back, and, and you know, it's, you know, I don't know. I, 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 I'm old school. I, I don't feel too bad about being that way, but, um, but I, but I try to even with my kids, to try to make sure I get some, you know, one-on-one time, whether it's going golfing and talking or it's uh, going to a ball game and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, you know. So
0: then how, how has that been able, how you been able to transition? Um, cause you're, you're a little bit older than I am. Yeah. And, uh, but you have four docs in your practice. Mm-hmm. You've got, I just met one of your young associates, uh, just a few minutes ago. How do you bridge the gap of that generation and what their expectations are and your expectations in order to have an attractive location to bring them in and also know that, um, they are kind of the stewards of your practice long-term. What, what's been your attitude on that, and how do you go through that process?
2: Um, I, I think I, you know, I came into the practice with a much senior partner when I joined. And um, you know, I had a lot of different ideas and energy and, and so forth, but, but there was something that, that he had that I learned a great deal about, it. and it's just that, you know, that, that, that what we do is, is service and as long as we keep thinking about the service side and taking care of people and and treating people right and staff right the rest of it all comes yeah and so the, the the value that we have is that we're always that servant attitude and and so i try to you know pass that on to you know my my other uh doctors and the newest doctor again significantly i mean he's you know you know younger than some of my children yeah yeah <laughs> and so uh Just to 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 try to pass that on to him that, you know, don't worry about the money, don't worry about your your school loans, all that kind of stuff. But what we're going to worry about, we're going to serve, and these patients are going to be coming back to us for a long time. We have you know multiple generations, just like in your practice, I'm sure, of patients that have come in and their kids have come in and their grandkids and their grandkids' kids, and and so the biggest thing is take care of people all the technology that comes and all the different things that we're going to be talking about this AMD protocol all that is so that we can better take care of them and if we do that if we keep the focus on that yeah i like to make money and yeah i like to be profitable sure. and i like to build a new building and all that kind of stuff but but it still all comes down to being a servant and and then you feel better at night when you go home and
0: do you think that um do you think that that is still cuz i i sort of think that um that that servant mentality is pretty pervasive, um, I mean, in, in young docs, um, especially when they're in school and just out of school. Where I think you can get jaded sometimes is um, is that, you know, in, in any profession, is that you get into a, um, you know, a realm where you don't have control over what, what's going on on a day-to-day basis. And that seems to be like the, the um, concern that a lot of a lot of docs have um, where where they just feel like there's so many things kind of coming at them from a regulatory standpoint, a healthcare standpoint. Um, there's so many rules that they just don't they don't feel confident in the fact that they're going to be able to to provide that care for their patients tomorrow or in two years or three years, whenever that time frame is. And I I wonder how much um, and and then that I think can make them disenfranchised. It makes them less passionate about caring for the patients, um, maybe because they feel less in control uh, over what's going to happen long term. So what do you think about that? What, are you seeing that, is that? Are you seeing that to be the case in, in doctors that you have communication with, uh, or am I just reading this wrong?
2: No, I, I, I think you're, you're, you're on the head with it, uh, particularly it's, it's with insurance and trying to, to, to figure out the, the best way to get reimbursed for your services. Um, and to battle with you know all the different rules and regulations that come with that, and to try to help your new doctors understand that you know sometimes you do all the right things mm-hmm. and you you don't get covered for it and and sometimes you you probably get more than what you think you should get and it's just a a, a sad part of it is that we kind of have to play the game of making sure that we're you know on top of it that we're you know unfortunately now where we used to have you know, two or three texts per doctor. Now we have two or three insurance people per doctor. Right, right, I mean, it's just right. it's just crazy. Um, but to try not to, um, to, to overemphasize that. I mean, I think that's the important thing with the new doctors. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't just dump on them all of this stuff is coding and whatever. Yeah. Let them have the fun. Right. The fun is that you're in the exam room with the patient. We have knowledge. They want to know what's going on. They want to feel confident that we're going to take care of them. That's the fun stuff. Yeah, Enjoy that. Enjoy it every day. Enjoy every time you're in there. Do all the other stuff. Learn all the other stuff. Do the best you can. Follow up on it. Don't, don't forget about the fun because that's why you, you know, why I am still doing this after a lot of years and I have no idea or thoughts about not doing it. Uh, I like to do a little less, a few, yeah. day, a few days less sure. and golf a little more. But I think that's <laughs> the biggest thing is let them, Let them have the joy.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that that is easy to let those things suck the joy out of what we do, right? Like, I think in general, you know, if I think about me um, and I think about kind of the things that that I think about that makes my that sucks my joy away from practices, you know, we see a fair number of complex patients in our practice. And, um, and so then, you know, if you're seeing a patient with a a third nerve palsy or a fourth nerve palsy or an anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, you've got to, you know, it's, you are there to, to take care of that patient. And that's why we, we do what we do, right? That's what we really thrive on. But then when you think about all the regulation, what, what, what always kind of sucks the fun out of that is I got to make sure that my scribe, when she's documenting, she does an awesome job, is documenting everything the exact way I want to because if this goes bad um, and I get sued, then I need to make sure that... So I think there's part of that as well in the realm. I also think there's part of it, this idea that um you know I, I don't know what your politics are and I tend not to get political on this but you know if you've listened to me long enough most people would would know I'm I, I tend to be more conservative I'm more of a libertarian in general I want people to just leave leave other people alone um so I don't really care um what what people are doing as long as it's not hurting other people but um you know I I I, I couldn't help but um but listen to uh some of the debates I want your perspective because it's sort of relevant to our conversation here. Is some of the debates with the Democratic nominees, and um, and you know, it really strikes me when somebody talks about healthcare being a right. I start thinking, what does that what does that mean? Healthcare is a right, and I, I do think that there is. Um, and it really kind of came up this week. I had a patient, or last week I had a patient that she came in 2070 division. She had had LASIK probably six or seven years ago. She's 54 years old. Had, um, she came in with 20 vision, could barely open her eyes because her dryness was so bad. Four plus SPK. Um, I mean, just horrible. Um, and fast forward six weeks through our normal protocols and treatment paradigm. She's done 20 twenty-twenty, just trace and fear SPK. She's doing awesome, right? And then she walks out and, um, and, and she doesn't want to pay for her copay that day, right? And that kind of stuff can suck the life out of a young doc because then they're like, "Well, I did everything I, I should do," and then they they kind of worry about that. And if you don't have good, you know, mentors, I'll tell you, my dad, that that happens. That happens over time. Every now and then, you get people that are just like, you know, you did everything for them, that and they they're doing awesome, and then they act like, "Well, I'm not paying for this." Like, like, well, who? How do you think? I had this wonderful building that you can come in to, to see me and we had all the staff and we, we took you from not legal to drive with a uh, a pain on a scale of, on a speed score of 28. You were a 28 and now you're a six, right? And, and we did that because I, I spent a lot of years ex- in my expertise and my training and my practice making sure we can take care of patients like you. And so... I couldn't help but think, I'm not sure this is why she thought that, but I couldn't help but think that she thought that my services were her right. And that's why it wasn't, wasn't worth <clears throat> anything. So what do you think about that? Do you think that's, that's kind of leading to some of these things and sucking some of the joy um, in young practitioners?
2: Yeah, I, I, I definitely uh, would go along with that. I think what happens is um, people are, are convinced that, that their insurance, you know, now insurance costs a little more. So they think that by paying that they pay everything, and they think that they have vision insurance that covers everything. And I think optometry is—you know—we're we're in a unique position. The good, good news and bad news. Yep. The good news is we have two two revenue streams. The, the bad news is that everything is supposed to be covered under that vision insurance, right? And it's not. Right. And and, and we become the bad guys. And so, I I think that somehow this this whole Political discussions about it has made it have uh, no value. Yeah. I mean, it's no value. It's a value. We know it's a value. The patient knows it as, a, as they're being treated right. that is a value, but it's got no monetary value. Yeah. It's just a thing that we're supposed to do. And individually, they don't particularly care whether we get paid or not. They just think they paid their insurance or they have it, in however, right. and it, that should take care of everything. And, and they have a deductible and somehow that becomes, you know, our responsibility right, and, right. and so forth. So I think that's, a, that's a, the, the real downside. And I think for, a, you know, for the, for the young docs coming in, um, again, with my, my, my case, I try to shield them from that as much as I can because that's, it's, you know, it's not fun for me. Right. But, but I learned, oh gosh, probably 15, 20 years ago, I share call at the hospital in the emergency room. Mm-hmm. And I learned early on that I'm gonna get up at two o'clock in the middle of the night or morning, whatever you want to call it, and I'm gonna go see somebody and they're probably not gonna pay me. Right? They probably don't have insurance right. yeah. and they're probably not gonna pay me. Yeah. Now, it bothered bothered me for a long time, but you know, finally I just said, you know what? I can't, I got, I, I, I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. I'm doing it because I want to do it. I hope they pay. Yep. I mean, I want to get paid, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna demean myself uh, by, by worrying about it. Yeah. Fortunately, and again, that helps being in practice and being successful and you, you know, you have income and you, you know, you, you've done that. So I don't want to put that on my young guy that, that he's got to worry about that. Yeah. I just want to take care of people. Yeah. You know, we're going to try to help him do all the coding so that everything gets paid, but I don't want him to worry about
0: it. Yeah. I think that's important. I think, I think you can lose sight, especially if you, you know, if you're on your own, you know, mm. I, as you know, I, I, I kind of go around and I, um, I help practices, I consult with practices to make sure that they're, um, you know, that they are doing, uh, following certain rules with billing and coding, those sorts of things. And, um, and what I find is that they tend to make these decisions because of that one experience that I was describing to you, right? Yep. It bothered them so much. They had that experience when they were first in practice, right? And we've all had it, yeah. right? We all had yeah. it within the first probably month of being in practice. And um, where, where somebody doesn't value the services that you're providing to them. And instead of saying that's an anomaly, right, which I have the perspective to be able to say, and I had the mentorship from my dad to be able to say, you know what, this is going to happen. If, if, they wanna, if, they, if they want the level of care that we provide, then they can either decide to pay or they'll get the level of care they get someplace else where they're just going to include it. And what winds up happening in far too many of these practices is that happens one time early on and then they make the rule that well we'll just include the follow-up care cuz i it's just it's just easier for me to do that than have to hassle with collecting the payment and what winds up happening is that becomes their modus operandi and um and then everything is devalued from there and so um so what winds what what do they do well the post-op care or the the follow-up care right i treat them for this condition i see them a week later and since it's um Since it, in my mind, I'm just including it in the payment for the first condition, then, you know, I'm not really going to manage this disease, right? I'm just going to treat it and then see you later. So then they're not going to do the follow-up as readily because they're worried about this. And and that actually just the downfall for that or what they do, what's worse. um, I mean, it's not worse because that patient needs care, right? But they know how to care for that patient. But because they don't have the confidence to be able to do the follow-up billing, et cetera, et cetera. Then, um, then they just say, well, I'm gonna let so-and-so do it. right?" And then so-and-so is just in this ivory tower, in this place where they take referrals, they don't have to deal with any of that stuff. Right. They're not gonna do any better job than you're gonna do, right. but they just know how to get paid for it. And they also don't get concerned if somebody doesn't pay because they have the same attitude. I'm here to take care of patients. Right. And, um, and so I think that's really the downstream trickle effect that happens with too many practices. Um, and it, I do think that this discussion of healthcare as a right kind of feeds that, feeds it. You know, it, um, I, I think of, of like what, it, what are rights? Now, I don't think that people should be denied services, right? Like, and I, I, I would be shocked if I came into your, into your um, office with, you know, a bad problem, and I said, I, I, can't, I can't pay you today, that you wouldn't see me, right? I just don't think that would happen. And I don't think it would happen to anybody. You know, I can, I can talk to all my buddies. Right. I don't think any of them would do that. They'd see the patient, right? But, um, but what happens is if something is a right, right? If I have a right to healthcare, what that means is I have a right to your service, right? All your education, all your training, all your investments that you've made, I have a right to that, meaning that you can't Make me pay for it, and you can't deny me for it, right? And I think that changes the conversation. I think it changes people's mindset of, um, you know, of of how they're approaching healthcare.
2: Yeah, I I would agree, and I think some of it starts with you look at the emergency rooms, and they have to see people, and now you see clinics and whatever actually telling people to go to the emergency room because they know they're not going to get paid, and so they don't see them. They just say. You know, wait till after hours, and then go to the emergency room, yeah. Because they know that the emergency room has to see them; they don't have any choice, and they're not going to get paid either. But at least that clinic didn't suffer the loss, and it's it's a sad scenario. Uh, but again, I think I think we've uh, we've created this situation where you know healthcare used to be valuable, and when it has no value, people don't take care of themselves right. as well. Yeah, and so people know. I mean, I you've had it, I'm sure, all week long. In their eye hurts. Right. Friday at five. Right. It hurts enough that they don't want to have it on the weekend, <laughs> so right. they come and see you. You know, and I stay there after hours, and I see them, and sure. I and I do whatever. And I I I have shifted a little bit. I probably for twenty years I would bill people, and we you know multiple times, and if they didn't pay, I would just adjust it off in their yeah. account, and I would not even send them to collections and I would just wait and if they came in again, they'd have to pay it or, not, or I wouldn't see them. Right. Um, and I, I guess I feel a little different obligation with some of my newer doctors and, and associates and finally have gotten to a point where I have some protocols where there's going to be people sent to collections yeah. because I think I was enabling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, that we, we can't enable either. So we have to train people that, you know what, you can't just unvalue this. Right you know, then then I'm not worthy to get paid. And since Mm -hmm. I'm not hounding you, you're not going to pay me. Well, I don't want to hound you. Right. But somebody else can hound you. Absolutely. And I don't care whether, I don't even care if I get the money back. Right. But I think there's a lesson that they've got to learn that this has consequences. You can't go abuse the system because it's costing everybody. Right. You can't abuse the system because you don't, you know, you want to spend your money somewhere else.
0: Yeah. I think it's a really good point because, you know, we, we do that. You know, right now we... You know, we don't have to adjust much off at the end of the year, right? But um, because we've set good protocols in place to make sure that we're capturing, you know, what copays are, what we know insurance is going to pay, et cetera, et cetera. And if you do that on the front end, you can, so I always tell people, you can do that on the front end when the patient's in your office, or you can do it on the back end when they're not in your office. Mm-hmm. Which one's going to be easier, right? It's going to be when they're in your office. And if you set, the, if you set that expectation, it's not going to be easy the first year. It's definitely not going to be easy the first month. It's not going to be easy for six months or the first year. But if you set that expectation the second year, the third year, the fourth year, you have trained that expectation of the value. So we, we still really fortunately don't have to adjust off much at the end of the year. We, oh boy, we have, um, we just, you know, it's such a small amount that we wind up, I, I think, you know, fundamentally, we should probably send some patients to collection. But, um, but it's so small, it's, like, it's just not worth the hassle. We've, we've actually, we have had some people, we've, we've had to take one person to court to small claims and we just got swindled. Uh, honestly, we just got swindled by that. Um, but, uh, but the bottom line is like, that's again, that's the exception. If you have good protocols in place and what it really allows you to do is your, your team, your staff, if they have a clear vision from you on how to handle those things, then, and, and you teach them how to discuss them. They, they're great at discussion. It never has to, it almost never gets back to the doctor, right? Like it never ha- is something that I have to talk about anymore, almost never. But when you first start doing those things, it does come back to the doctor occasionally, right? But pretty soon, your staff knows how to handle those things so well, they can articulate them so well that patients aren't upset about those things. They, yeah. they actually just are like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And they understand it. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I think, um, you know, your point about collections is interesting because I do think that it, it does send the message, you know, we do the same thing. We won't see them, you know, if if they come in and they've had bad debt, um, they have to pay that bad debt, of course. But, um, but, uh, it does send the message that, you know, it's not free.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, you know, it's one of those things to me. It's really, again, like I said, it's not about the, the money. Um. I mean, ultimately, I got to pay bills like everybody else, and I and I would rather collect it all. But it, but it's really, yeah. I hate to get into another realm, but no, it's kind ahead. of kind of like uh, student loans.
0: Yeah.
2: And they're talking about all this forgiveness of student oh, loans and don't pay it back and all this kind of thing, and <laughs> and, and, and and just bothers me because the problem isn't isn't that the the problem is that they should have some of these people the course studies that they had they should not have gotten yeah. loans. I mean, you can't borrow $100,000 for a job that's going to pay you $25,000 a year. Yeah. It <laughs> doesn't you, make you sense. You can't, it doesn't add up. And they don't, they don't make you do a business plan when you're borrowing this money. They don't make you uh, sign a thing that says, I understand that, you know, these yep. are the jobs that are going to be available to me and this is what it pays. And so I'm going to have to suck down my lifestyle. You know, can't live as good as I did when I was in college. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then I'm going to pay this back. And, and, and so I think, Again, that's all part of this same process is we're saying, you know, education has has no value, healthcare has no value, work has no value, yeah. and and so I don't know where, you know, where we end. That's not, you know, the, the Midwest that I grew up in or yeah. that you grew up in, yeah. where we, you know, we, we all paid our responsibilities. You expected to. You didn't get in deeper than you could yeah. get out of, and uh, so I... You know, it's a, it's a coddling thing that just is yeah. a concern to me.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I think if we relate, you know, just student debt, and I've had these conversations on, on the podcast before about student debt, but you know, I think a couple things. I mean, the first thing is that, uh, you know, on the one hand, um, even though there are these degrees that that probably aren't going to generate you that much money in total, if you have a college degree, your earning power is significantly higher than somebody that doesn't. So if you're going to give like if we're going to go down that road and we're going to forgive student loan debt, you know, just wipe it all clean. You know, there's a lot of problems there that, that you never hear the, the conversations going into, right? Like the first problem is, like that is a massive upper middle class welfare system, right? Like, like if, if it's true, and it is, the studies show you that if you went to college and you have a degree, you're going to have a, more, a greater lifetime earning potential on average than somebody that didn't. So now we're going to take money to, and, and basically give it to people who already have a potential to earn more from people who maybe just went right out of high school and started hustling. Right. And, and they never got, they, they were fiscally responsible, right? They, they did the right, the quote unquote right things. And, and then you also have like the, the second thing that's really a challenge is that like, you know, I got out of school, um, I had about $100,000 of student loans. Um, my wife worked for most of the time we were in school before we had uh, our oldest daughter. And then we knew that I either had to work side jobs, which I did, get scholarships, or take out additional loans to pay for, p- pay for all of that. Yeah. And so, um, so if that's what we were going to do, then, um, then that's how we're going to be able to afford it. So $100,000 11 years ago is way different than what they're coming out with now, right? But like... It would also, if we wipe things clean, right? And, and this is selfish because it's my story. But um, but if they wipe things clean, I hustled for three years right out of school, hustled, and you know, I, and that that kind of per- is what I do currently, right? For other reasons, but but um, I paid that loan, I paid those loans off fast. Yeah. Well, that's great. But are we going to now take tax dollars from people who didn't go to college and rack up those loans? And oh, by the way, I paid my loans off, so. What what happens to me, right? I was responsible. I didn't, you know. I, I we 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 sacrificed as a family, uh, and that happens all over. I'm not just using me. Well, yeah. I'm a microcosm, no, no. Right? right? That happens all over the place. And um and then what happens to the next generation of people to go to college, right? We've wiped everybody out now. Uh, all the loans out now. But what happens tomorrow? Somebody gets a student loan. It's not fair to
2: them. Are we, you know, are we really in fact going to make college free for everybody? Well, it's just the it's just the first step because the next step is. You know, I borrowed this money for the house, but now I don't have the job that I had before, and so, gosh, we, we can't make you pay for the right, house, right? I mean, you have to have a house, yeah. So we'll forgive that loan, that debt, and and ultimately, mm. yeah. You know, where does it? You know, where does it stop? Yeah. It's not. It's really not. Th- this whole thing is not about anybody thinking that this is actually right or right. I I really can't believe even the people that are suggesting this think it's right. I mean, how can they think it's right that you? you borrow money for something that you need or want right. without any intention to pay it back. Right. I mean, I, I don't see anybody could think that's possibly right or, or how it's somebody's fault. Yeah. You know, nobody twisted their arm and said, you have to borrow money to go to college. right? I mean, I think that, you know, we all see examples I and mean, you could, you could literally work you'd have to go to, you know, do it and you'd have to spend uh, uh, maybe a, a lot of years to get your degree. But people have done it. Lots of yeah, people sure, have done it. Sure. And they're working while they're going to school. And, and no, they're not having a fun life. And they're not you know, able to party and all that kind of stuff. But people can do it. Yeah. And I don't have any problem at all with people borrowing. But the expectation should always be, always be that you're going to pay it back. Yeah. Because again, if our government says that, what are they going to say about now, You know, this whole promise of, of Medicare, the whole promise of Social Security, the whole promise of that you saved this money, right? And and then you're gonna have it in your retirement. And now they're talking about taxing that money in your retirement yeah. account that they yeah. said they weren't gonna tax, because because you saved up and you have enough to retire on and live well because you paid your way along the way. Yep. Uh, you know, it's again. It, I hate to say it, but it's about the it's about the masses versus the smaller people that do the right thing yeah and it used to be the masses did the right thing and the smaller people didn't and so we, we, we must not be teaching things right if we're if we're switching that around yeah you know we're, we're again that same thing we talked about with the insurance we're teaching people that you know doing the right thing doesn't very valuable you're kind of a sucker right and and that's a slippery slope for our country I think.
0: well how does it so if we, if we relate that back to like you know current Graduates. You know, I think that's where, you know, from an optometry perspective, that's where some of this stuff, you know, one, my impression is, is, isn't that new graduates have that mentality. I think they, I think new graduates, uh, they want to take care of patients. They want to do the right thing for patients. Um, but they are saddled with, you know, quarter of a million dollars of, of student loan debt, right? That's real. And, um, and they don't know. Like, how do they get out of that? Like, how do you? How, and as a profession, how do you make sure that you don't let that limit um, without forgiveness? Right? How do you make sure that that doesn't limit what you can do and how you practice and how you take care of patients?
2: That, that's interesting that you bring that up because I had been um, looking for associates for quite a, quite a while. I'm not in a I'm in a decent sized community, but not in a metropolitan, and everybody wants to live in a metropolitan, and and so. Um, I had not too long ago been at a lecture and they talked about doing something to incentivize them to come with you in, in relation to student loans. Mm-hmm. And so what I did with my newest associate is I'm going to put away $10,000 a year, mm-hmm. over and above his salary, $10,000 a year into an account that when he decides to buy in, mm-hmm um he can either use that to pay off his school loans or he can use that as a buy down into the practice. Mhm. And I'll do that for up to 10 years. Um and and, and so so again it's kind of connecting that yeah. way a, a way to keep them in private practice versus you know uh kind of taking the short sale and and going into a a commercial practice where they can make maybe an a initial more money up front. Right. And pay down their student loans. The whole idea is obviously is they're going to pay it down, and then they're going to get into this. Well, they get stuck sometimes, yeah, yeah, because you you know get stuck with that income, and you get stuck with all those hours and whatever. But so so that that uh, you know, I think it was it really made sense to me, yeah, you know that that I'm kind of making an investment in my new associate.
0: Was that attractive to
2: them? Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So I you know I I would think that people might think about that if you're in an area where you're having trouble. I mean that's a attractive thing to them is they're getting paid plus somebody's investing in their ability to get out of that debt.
0: Yeah. And essentially, you know, it binds them to the practice. It it gives them value to stay with the practice. Right.
2: Yeah, if he um, if he leaves, yeah. It's mine.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean and, and that's again, it's um it is uh I think and, and the real big thing, I was talking to Ted Ted Macroy about this, and he, you know, really what you, I think in an ideal situation for private practice to thrive over time is you're not, you're not looking for an out when you're ready to get out, right? It would be, it's not going to be easy for AB to retire tomorrow, right? But if you're thinking five to 10 years down the road and you've got a plan in place to make that happen, then you can grow those people. Like I think about, you know, I've said this before and I'm not sure that he listens, but to the podcast, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for, for, um, my, my dad and my parents, my, my mom and my dad, that they, they figured out ways to buy me to the practice, not just family, right. But beyond that, that, so I could get over that first couple years of thinking, gosh, I could probably be doing this for more. I mean, that, that thought goes through your head, oh, yeah. right. Sure. Even when you're, even when you're, um, and, and now I look back 11 years, I'm like, I would have been a moron to leave, right? I would have been a total moron. Um, and, and I'm not saying that that's, that's the right thing for everybody. But for me, I, I have that reflection and think, gosh, you know, I, I look at, at the practice that, that we've built and it's just awesome. You know, it, it does what we want it to do. We've got great employees. Um, you know, we, don't have, we have our problems like everybody has, but, like, but it's like, it's really rewarding. It's a lot of fun. And I still really enjoy, I walk into the office and I think, oh, this it's exactly what I want, yeah. right? It's exactly what I would have thought when I was in school. Um, but my perception was in school is I'm gonna walk into this practice, yeah. right? Is that I'm gonna, I'm gonna immediately get out of school and I'm gonna start seeing patients and it's gonna be this way. Well, it, it's interesting because I, I didn't think, yeah, okay, what we have now is, is what I wanted when I was in school it's not because I was, I'm there, right? It's because, it's because my, my parents did a lot of work getting us to that point. And then they were able to transmit that, um, that ideology, the vision for the practice effectively to me, I'm probably not that good of a vision caster like my dad is. Um, but they were able to do that so that I could kind of continue to carry out what we've, you know, what, what they've built and expand on that. Well, it's I'm just realizing now over the last couple of years, really even over the last you know year or two, that um, that our practice is exactly what I want, right? It's exactly the way I want to practice. It's built exactly the way we want it. But you forget when you first get out of school yeah. that that's not gonna be the case, right? It takes, it takes time. And so I think that's the hard part is when people can say like they're a brand new division source or they're brand new in practice. Um, like, well, you know, AB's doing awesome. Yeah. Why, why am I not doing yeah. awesome, right? Or like, why am I having these same struggles? And uh, it's because it doesn't happen overnight. It's because it's this continual ongoing. I ask myself all the time, I, I think, um, how can we make this process better? How can we make this process better, right? And, and eventually, you know, you're never, like, I don't think our practice is perfect, of right. course, but that's the point, right? It's, it's you're continually improving upon it
2: i tell i tell all every every employee that I hire um you know every every all the doctors that I have i, I tell them I like change yeah and and <laughs> if you don't like change, you may not be happier, yeah, <laughs> because I'm always uh, looking for an opportunity to to change things, do something different, do something unique, try something if it doesn't work, you know you tried it, and I just think uh, it, it it excites me yeah and and You know, patients notice it. You know, you got a different piece of equipment. You you handle things different when they checked in. You have something different in the optical. I mean, they they just notice that. They they almost expect it. Yeah. And so, and and I think you know that's what makes it fun too. Is we're not just it's not just showing up and doing the same thing every day. Really, Uh it's always looking for a better way or a different way or a new way or a a new technology or or a new treatment or Uh, You know, something that that patient that, you know, that you maybe just saw, can't wait till next year to see him again because he got something that really going to do for him. Yeah. And so I I think as a young practitioner, that's kind of what I want to translate to my, my newest associate is that it's not a done deal Mm -hmm. just because you're graduated uh, from school and you're a doctor. This isn't the end. Yeah. This is just the beginning. Totally. And I hope that when I'm gone, you're making this better and more like you and whatever uh that's that's i can't i think the legacy that i would leave is that it's long after i'm gone they're still changing and innovative and somebody will say oh yeah i remember when dr Iron was here and man this is a lot different he'd, he'd be amazed at this and yeah <laughs> so you know that's kind of the the cool thing about optometry right
0: yeah well i think i think that's probably um a great place to stop Amy and i will tell you um you know I've had this conversation with numerous people, but you, you did have an impact on me early on, whether you knew it or not, um, in your dedication to PAC, and so I've always remembered your name, I've always kind of paid attention to what you've been doing, and so thanks for all the things that you've done,
2: and uh, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, well, I appreciate it, and, uh, thanks for asking me. You're
0: welcome.